welcome to the Data Democracy. Presented by renowned O'Reilly author Ole Olsen Banyu. Empowered by Xenia. Make your data accessible and discoverable by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Hi everybody, you're listening to The Data Democracy, and I'm your host, Ole Olesen Benjø, Chief Evangelist in Cinea and the author of the Enterprise Data Catalog, published by Relic. In this podcast, we explore what an enterprise data democracy is with knowledgeable guests. Today's guest is Svetoslav Kotosev. Svetoslav is an enterprise architecture researcher based out of Melbourne, Australia. He's written the book, The Practice of Enterprise Architecture, and has a very unique take on it that is a rare, powerful way to succeed with enterprise architecture. My takeaways from the conversation with Svetoslav. First, a data democracy takeaway. Enterprise architecture is not a role. We all need to perform it as data practitioners, also to make data discoverable and useful for everyone. A data leader takeaway. Pragmatic, evidence-based enterprise architecture is a key component to frame the conversation about the strategic business ambitions and how IT can support that. And finally, a personal takeaway. When I read Svetoslav's book, I was lucky to read the preface of his book. Let's admit it, we often skip prefaces, but it's in the prefaces, bios and notes that authors reveal themselves. So remember to read them. It's a really great way to get under their skin. Okay, enough of me ranting. Let's hear what Svetoslav has to say. Hi, Svetoslav. Hi, Ole. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you very much for, for joining the show. It's a pleasure having you on. Um, for the listeners, would you care to talk a little bit about uh, who you are, your work experience, what you've done in your career? Uh, okay, I think uh, it would be fair to say that currently I call myself enterprise architecture researcher. Mm-hmm. This is what I do basically full time. I research enterprise architecture practices in organizations. So how how these practices work, what architects do as part of these practices and all other aspects. Um, regarding my previous background, well, I a um, uh, long time ago I had some engineering degree, then I started to work in the industry. I started to work as a software developer, then I grew into senior software developer, I guess, and then I became kind of uh, application architect myself. And my intention was initially to develop into enterprise architecture space. And then uh, <clears throat> at some moment in my career, I just realized that analyzing things, studying things and researching things, I find much more interesting than actually doing things and practicing things. So instead of becoming enterprise architect myself, I became enterprise architecture researcher. Mm-hmm. So this is how I find uh, uh, this, how I found this topic itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and um, I have already introduced you uh, and, and mentioned that I have used your work, your book in my own uh, work as an enterprise architect. I was lucky enough to be part of a small, very clever team of enterprise architects uh, in a, my previous position. And uh, that really finalized, I say, I'd say, I like to think of it like that, uh, my, um, my understanding of, uh, of enterprise architecture. And you, your book uh, really played a key role. Um, we could perhaps dive a little more into that, uh, Slav. I, I would, I would like to know, like in your, in the preface of your book, you described that there's, there were certain things that you realized, um, I guess, during uh, 
your PhD studies that about enterprise architecture, certain thing that you came to realize that you, yeah, what, what was that about? Yeah, you are exactly right. So um, in the preface of my book, I actually um, describe some kind of story behind behind the book and how the, uh, the idea to write this book came to me. And the story is that when I uh, I enrolled into PhD studies in RMIT University, and um, so as all PhD students, I started first uh, from studying available literature, what we know about the subject. And I very fanatically studied lots of different publications on enterprise architecture, including all these famous frameworks and also tips of research literature that most people never saw in their life. <laughs> so um, uh, eventually, um, uh, the outcome of my studies was uh, total confusion about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Was uh, what uh, I, I found in this um, kind of existing publications is a bunch of prescriptive frameworks that tells everyone that you should do enterprise architecture this way, a number of studies showing that they don't actually work, a number of case studies showing that companies are actually working in some other ways. So lots of inconsistent evidence. And uh, uh, the most popular ideas uh, that were circulating in the enterprise architecture community at that time, they actually never, never had any empirical support. And after the year, one year of my fanatical studies of literature, I just uh, realized that I spent one year studying enterprise architecture literature and I don't understand anything because (laughs) what I found is lots of contradictions that that do not uh, kind of compose any sort of big picture where, Mm -hmm. which, which I can understand myself. And then, um, um, probably I had, well, when you begin PhD studies, you have to start from some kind of questions. And I also had my research question, but then I just realized that my research questions, they don't really work because I don't understand anything at all. And I decided to start to be able to understand how things really are. I decided to start from the most basic questions that came to my mind. And the most basic question was to find out at first, okay, what artifacts I actually used. And my first research effort and my PhD thesis uh, mostly uh, they talk about uh, yeah, analyzing artifacts um, used in the industry and uh, that then provided the core model, CSV, LOD model that uh, provides the basis for, for the entire book and around which the book chapters are structured. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I want to slow you down uh, for, the, for, the, for the sake of the listeners. I think it's uh, we're diving into something very, very interesting and we will touch upon this. Uh, I want to um, take a step back and just say that uh, I am TOGAF certified myself. I am not a TOGAF fan, <laughs> um, but there is a technical institute here in Copenhagen where I live where you can get those kinds of certifications. And I took that certification and I was struck by the fact that TOGAF framework tells you a lot about how IT should be carried. like. The ideal or logical description of of um, of how to do IT. You have all these bubbles, and 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 there's a bubble in the middle, and there's a bubble on top, and and every everything seems really neat in 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 the idea in the framework of TOGAF. And I passed the test, uh, like a multiple choice memory test, and I got my certification. And it was really difficult to remember all the answers. Then I didn't really use that TOGAF certification. 
So for the listeners, like why do why I know that you know exactly why, but can we unfold a little bit why that is? Why didn't I use that tool? I'm sorry. Uh, well, you mean why didn't you use uh, that knowledge that you obtained yeah. in practice? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have to tell you the secret. I'm also TOGAF certified and I oh. became, became TOGAF certified long before I started my PhD studies. And I was also mm -hmm. hoping to gain some knowledge about how to do enterprise architecture when I was intended to become enterprise architecture practitioner. I also studied TOGAF materials and I got TOGAF certified. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but why that, uh, why that doesn't really, why this knowledge why, why, do, why doesn't it work in, in practical yeah. life? What is, it, what is it based on, I mean, uh, this framework? Uh, yeah, my uh, studies of historical literature, uh, uh, when I did these studies, uh, I found out that what we have currently in TOGAF is just a copy of old-fashioned methodologies that were promoted by different companies uh, under different titles, maybe for 50 years ago, since 50 years ago. So. Uh, we had historically tens of different step-by-step -step methodologies that uh, prescribed approximately the same things that TOGAF prescribes today. Mm -hmm. These methodologies were proposed and promoted by some consultancies who did some business selling them, consulting based on them. But the problem is that uh, all research suggests that these methodologies never resulted in anything useful for organizations. So the most typical result of the application of such step-by-step -step methodology like TOGAF ADM is that you just create a bunch of shelfware that's not really helpful to anyone, just a bunch of documents that eventually collect dust. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of TOGAF friends, uh, but I gotta say, when I read the preface in your book and the entire book, I read all the chapters in your book, um, I was really like, it just, it just hit me that, okay, this guy is onto something. I mean, you flip-flop how you do enterprise architecture totally. So it's not a logical imagination of how enterprise architecture should be carried out. It's something else. And so what's your take on enterprise architecture? How do you study it? How do you advise on doing it? Yeah, okay. So indeed, all these methodologies, including TOGAF, what they provide is some idealistic description of how one would desire things to work. So they plan everything and then construct some perfect kind of IT landscape. But because organizations are very dynamic, very complex, and dealing with lots of people with different opinions and changing these opinions every day, that the idealistic approach doesn't work. Mm -hmm. My take was uh, to uh, understand as best as I could how people actually practice enterprise architecture. So gather different perspectives of different people from different organizations and then uh, compose all that into some kind of conceptual model that is, uh, on the one hand, uh, generic enough to be able to capture situation in general, and uh, on the one hand, practical enough to inform action. And that totally hit me and my team as a cannonball when we read that. I mean, that was like, okay, so you're flip-flopping the perspective from instead of having this ideal picture of what everyone should do, you're studying what organizations have actually done, and by that, you're synthesizing this into common knowledge that everyone can use. Yeah, that's right. So basically what I did, I just uh, tried to document what uh, companies are currently doing and find that this more or less works in practice. Mm -hmm. So um, in this sense, uh, all these practices that I describe in my book, this is not my invention. These are practices born in industry. 
Uh, what you can credit as my invention is maybe some neat conceptual models that capture these practices. These conceptual yeah. models, yeah, I created them, but I did not create these practices themselves, didn't invent them. And all my works and the book, they are not prescriptive. And mm-hmm. this is important. So I'm not trying to say that you have to do this way. What I'm saying that people generally do this in this way. And mm-hmm. organizations and practitioners, they are free to learn from it. And, uh, and uh, for example, one reading my book can say, okay, if most companies work in this way. Maybe we will also try this way. But if that doesn't work for us, then we should invent some other way that fits our needs. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's totally pragmatic, which is, is something that is very rare for enterprise architecture. I have always felt, and we are all uh, in this dilemma, um, if you advise at a certain level on how to structure an IT landscape right, in an organization, you typically find yourself uh, at uh, at a level where you can say, okay, this is uh, this is a domain architect, or it could be a senior solution architect, or maybe we have a couple of enterprise architects providing advice at that very strategic level of IT uh, IT management, right? And and I have always found that a lot of uh, enterprise architects are quite honest. Honestly, I think they. They they confirm the myth about the enterprise architect as someone sitting in an ivory tower, but but your approach is actionable in a way that kind of dismantles the ivory tower, right? Because it's so pragmatic, and I and I really like that. Anyway, and 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 furthermore, you unfold the this idea of 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 using artifacts, not doing prescriptive advisory, saying you need to do this and this and that, but to unfold a map. Uh, of possibility via what you call artifacts, and and maybe now it's time for to, to dive into the CSV model. Can you tell the listeners what what's uh, what's your CSV LOD model? Uh, yeah, this model uh, is a model that describes at a high level um, artifacts that are used in enterprise architecture practices. Let's put it this way. So this model defines six general types of uh, artifacts that you can find in any I think successful architecture practice. Uh, these types are CSV LOD is, a, is an acronym for for the titles of the six general types of artifacts. First one is considerations. So these are some kind of high level uh, high level suggestions about how we're going to work things like principles. Second one is standards. This is purely technical suggestions about how we uh, what technologies we use, how we use them, and so on. Then next type uh, is visions. Uh, these are high-level views of the organization from business standpoint, where you can use to decide, for example, where we need to invest our money. Uh, landscapes are technical descriptions of the organization to be able to say, okay, how our what our IT landscape looks like. And then um, outlines are high-level views of specific initiatives that you launch, specific projects that are understandable to the business so that business stakeholders can understand, okay, what projects we're launching and what benefits it's going to provide us. And then last one is designs. Designs are technical artifacts that you create for projects to actually implement it, something that you eventually hand over to project teams who implement all that. Mm-hmm. This model, um, how I produce this model? My, uh, yeah, as I told you the story about my start of my PhD studies, my research question was about, uh, basically, about understanding what art- artifacts are used and how they're used. According to these questions, I just visited different com- companies, um, interviewed 
uh, enterprise architecture practitioners at different levels, including enterprise architects, solution architects, domain architects. I asked them a number of stupid questions like, what artifacts do you actually use? Uh, what information they contain? How you use them? For what stake you create them? And things like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, eventually, I collected a pretty large uh, database of descriptions. Of, uh, and also, they provided me some samples. So I gathered a huge database of different descriptions of what people use in different companies. And then uh, I asked myself, okay, but what is the different... First of all, I realized quickly that different companies use different artifacts in slightly different ways under different titles, and there is very little consistency across the industry in this area. But uh, then I asked myself, okay, so what... Um, this is specific artifacts that companies use, but what generally they use? And I started to see some clear patterns uh, in terms of that there are similar artifacts used for similar purposes that uh, have similar properties, similar life cycles and so on. And then I uh, was, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to better organize this, um, all these artifacts into some convenient model. And then I just realized that, uh, yeah, some artifacts you discuss with business, some artifacts you just use within IT mostly. Yes. So that they can be categorized into two different um, categories, right? And then I just was also thinking, okay, what they describe, and I realized that some of them describe some rules, how your organization works, like principles and standards. Some of them try to capture a big picture of what you have in your organization that I call structures. And another one, they describe specific uh, solutions or specific changes that you're implementing, and I call that uh, changes or solutions. And uh, yeah, eventually I realized that these are two orthogonal uh, dimensions that can be combined together. And I found that this is a very cool taxonomy. And uh, yeah, when I produced it, I actually visited a number of people whom I interviewed and uh, to discuss the resulting outcome with them. And I provided them with this taxonomy and they all said, well, that's very actually <laughs> clearly explains what we're actually producing. Exactly. That was also my feeling once I saw that uh, that rectangular figure. And for the listener, listeners, there will be a, there will be a link uh, to the to the to the CSV LOD model because yeah. it's it's split right. It's a rectangular shape, but it's split uh, horizontally and then also vertically in three uh, different uh, dimensions. Like. Yeah, and uh, one of the guys with whom I actually discussed this model, he said that it's so cool that I don't understand why nobody proposed that before. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's very unique, uh, Svetoslav, your approach to enterprise architecture, exactly because uh, enterprise architecture has been imagined in this very logical um, uh, approach where you like try to think yourself to... To, to the perfect enterprise architecture instead of empirically study it my, out there in, in the companies that are performing it. Because every company, every single company needs to perform enterprise architecture. I think the biggest, the biggest symbol of, need, of a need for enterprise architecture in a company when, when some kind of CDO or CIO fires all the enterprise architects. That is where you can really see, okay, at this point, we really, really need enterprise architecture because clearly it has gone wrong. And they don't understand the necessity of it, but they might also not understand the necessity of it because the offerings from those enterprise architects might have been very, very uh, unimplementable, in lack of a better word. 
Have, have you seen that out there? Uh, well, uh, it is, I think, pretty widely known that in many organizations, enterprise architecture practices are constantly reorganized and reshaped and architects are often fired and uh, the reputation of the word architecture is discredited. This is widely reported and um, in many, no, in some organizations in which I uh, get with people and did my research, they also had some previous history of unsuccessful attempts to establish architecture practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, so this is uh, pretty widely known. But at the same time, I think at the time when I started doing my PhD studies and started actually interviewing people, there were already some kind of uh, un- undocumented body of knowledge among within enterprise architecture community, among practitioners who know intuitively what to do because they kind of saw that working somewhere else. And uh, uh, so, I mean, at that time, I think... Uh, uh, at least in Australia, most organizations uh, that really depend on IT, they already had more or less sensible enterprise architecture practices. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think um, the worst period was a little bit before I studied. Uh, I, I started to study enterprise architecture. So I maybe uh, uh, yeah started my studies when uh, there was already some more or less well-formed body of best practices in the industry. Okay, yeah, that's uh, of course an a good starting point. Um, but um, okay, so uh, moving into this is the data democracy podcast. So moving into um, that specific topic, I mean, to what extent do you think enterprise architecture uh, as a function is an enabler of data of democratizing data? I mean, we have to make data discoverable and accessible to to anyone. Uh, just keeping in, in, in mind the security, of course, and privacy. Mm-hmm. So generally, enterprise architecture practice, I think, is conducive to democracy. <laughs> Let's put it this way. And the reason because uh, uh, no key about enterprise architecture practice is communication, when different people are involved in decision making. So without enterprise architecture practices, there are some business people trying to make decisions about IT that eventually prove prove to be inefficient and ineffective. Yeah. Enterprise architecture practice kind of involves architects in communication with business leaders so that they start to discuss things together. Mm-hmm. So uh, from this standpoint, enterprise architecture is definitely a step towards greater democracy when more people are involved in decision making, more people uh, have voice in decision making. Artifacts, are all, most of them, they are obviously some communication devices so that you can involve uh, different people, different audiences in discussing solutions that you propose, roadmaps that you develop. Exactly. That was another learning uh, from your book. Uh, I had to I had to rethink myself as an enterprise architect. I mean, I've been doing that as a, as a leader earlier in, in my career. But as an enterprise architect, I really had to understand that my primary role was communication. I was like uh, a little... That was kind of an aha moment for me because enterprise architecture performed well is actually a lot of communication. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that previously you mentioned that lot, uh, pre- um, about previous methodologies and frameworks that they all prescribe lots of documents that you should create. Yeah, so, exactly. Never seriously explain why they are created. So what's the point of all these documents? You documented everything, for example. So what? So what? Mm. Exactly. And uh, they miss the point entirely that these documents uh, are just means 
to improve communication. Mm-hmm. For example, documents like business capability model you can use to establish some effective communication between business representatives and IT because they provide, on the one hand, uh, the notion of business capability that business understands and can say, okay, we need to improve these capabilities. And on the one hand, capabilities are easily translatable to system language. You mm-hmm. want to improve customer relationship management capability, then we need to probably upgrade our CRM system or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this is how artifacts, they bridge the gap between business and IT in terms of communication. And uh, uh, yeah, all previous uh, uh, prescriptive approaches mostly only recommend what documents you need without any explanations why. And uh, Yeah, that's like the horror scenario I found myself in sometimes as an enterprise architect, uh, someone that you consult. Uh, if you are a business leader, you consult the enterprise architect when you feel like it and you follow the advice as you feel like. That is a horrible situation to be in as someone that has to deliver strategic input uh, at a relatively high level, right? Um, and even for, I was lucky enough to uh, to provide advice uh, to to the C-suite uh, in my uh, latest uh, employment in a, in a very very big enterprise. Um, so, and and I think that was mainly due to the fact that we understood to what degree it was communication uh, enterprise architecture. I want to get back to um, what you mentioned earlier, that business leaders, without this um, approach, without this understanding, they might take not very logical and uninformed decisions. Uh, Can you share a little bit more about the consequences of the decisions they would take uh, in terms of uh, technology, in terms of data, if they they do not uh, incorporate uh, enterprise architecture and certainly the way you think uh, enterprise architecture should be performed? Yeah, okay, there are many examples can be provided. Uh, elementary mm-hmm. examples is when uh, they, uh, for example, they have some business problem, right? And they want to solve it with technology. But they don't, un- for example, business leaders don't know what technologies actually exist. They maybe know some, mm-hmm. but because they are not technologists and they don't spend most of their time like studying technologies and products from vendors, they maybe find some outdated solutions to this problem or did not. Uh, we just uh, use technology not because it's effective, but because that's the only what thing that they know. Uh, more interesting, I think, problem is the problem of uh, problem of innovations that uh, requires some sort of new thinking from business and from IT at the same time, and then together they come up with some innovative product that innovative from business standpoint and from IT standpoint as well because it uses some latest advances in IT. Mm. Uh, so. Neither architects nor business leaders themselves in isolation cannot come up with innovative idea of this kind, but only when they work together. Yes, yes. Uh, so these are, I think, a number of examples that uh, yeah, explain why um, collaborative decision-making uh, is required that utilizes the expertise from both business side and from the IT side. And uh, yeah, this is how it happens when enterprise architecture practices work successfully. Ideas are produced collaboratively. When enterprise architecture practices don't work, business leaders don't consult with architects and what they do, they just uh, produce some ideas on their own that oftentimes are just ineffective. Yeah, yeah. And then you can have these long fights between architects that are sort of the gatekeepers of what applications the IT department wants to uh, approve in terms of security and principles and then the business will stay on the other side and then they will argue for years and the development will just completely 
outface this company because they've been surpassed by a lot of other vendors. And, and yeah, so 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 these are some very typical scenarios, right? Myself, I have a I have experienced the like the necessity in terms of democratizing data. I have really uh, really enjoyed uh, your understanding of a capability map as a key to really um, really unlock. Uh, and structure the various uh, data sources and types of data in those data sources uh, in an organization. I think it's a it's a fantastic artifact in, in that regard. Yatoslav, we are approaching the end of the of the conversation. Uh, a broad question for you: Can you share what you think the future of enterprise architecture will be? I mean, I I at least, and I don't know the research to the same degree as you, but. I see a vast majority of enterprise architects still following these very unfruitful frameworks. You mentioned that the situation in Australia is perhaps a little different than than here in in Northern Europe. I, I don't know, but um, what's what's your take on the future of enterprise? I think you asked um, actually two different questions. <laughs> One okay, okay. Frameworks, yeah. another about future. I will uh, add some of them separately. Yeah, cool. First about frameworks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You say that most people kind of use frameworks. I think uh, that what they actually do is use them purely rhetorically. Because if you ask what they actually do and compare with what frameworks prescribe, you will find that there is almost no match. (laughs) That's a good point. And you're right, you're right, you're right. In my observations, probably half of all enterprise architecture practitioners, including those that I interviewed, they say that they kind of use frameworks. And if you kind of launch a global survey asking like, are you using some frameworks, they maybe tick some boxes. Mm-hmm. But the question is when I asked them to explain exactly how do you use them, there were some curious cases when they were just unable to provide any explanations. They were saying that they talk of based practice, but when I asked, okay, so what exactly did you take from Toga? They said nothing or they said just, basic ideas like principles or they were saying that we think about business applications, data and technology domains, but this is all just general common sense, right? This is not talk of specific, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the question is whether somebody uses frameworks. Rhetorically, yes, they get certified. They put that on their CVs. If they need to sell this practice to CIO, they can say, okay, we use uh, TOGAF, which is best practice global framework, right? And so as a label, they <laughs> it uh, widely, widely found. But uh, in terms of actionable suggestions, I believe that no architect currently in his or her sane mind is going to try to use that as it describes. Use of frameworks is purely symbolic. It's not, doesn't define anything. doesn't matter what people say, whether they use them or not use them, they do something absolutely different that's about frameworks and second question about the future of enterprise architecture uh it's a yeah as you said a broad question and uh, i can tell you a number of concerns about it first of all every attempt to predict future show that they do not succeed right and uh, no one if somebody is saying that they know what's going to happen in detail they are lying even if they turned out to be correct as Mm -hmm. the proverb says Another the thing about uh, future that I learned specifically from doing enterprise architecture research. No, I read uh, I read thousands of publications on enterprise architecture, including lots of historical publications from the earlier stages of um, information systems and organizations and information systems planning. And what I uh, surprisingly realized 
that um, current practices that we have currently in the industry right now, they were not predicted by anyone, not prescribed by anyone. Mm-hmm. You, you see, for example, uh, yeah, what people are actually doing, and you, you will not be able to find any prescriptive approaches saying that uh, they should do like that. It means that uh, actual practice forms itself uh, irrespective of any anyone's prescriptions, predictions. It just lives uh, its own kind of separate life and develops um, according to some more objective laws that don't really care about what anyone is thinking about it. In this sense, uh, so you know, uh, like in physics, we have some laws of gravity and uh, objects behave according to these laws. In organizations, we also have some laws about uh, organizational decision-making, for example, that shape how people make actually decisions. And uh, that's why no one's prescriptions about how people should make decisions are not going to change that. It's going to be just maybe create some hype but it's not going to change anything. And uh, yeah, and finally, finally, <laughs> how <laughs> practices are really developing. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, as I said, the future is not predictable in detail, so I couldn't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but some general tendencies, I think, can be articulated and they are kind of obvious. Obviously, organizations are uh, getting more and more dependent on IT. This trend is happened since IT first emerged, since then, every article about IT starts from saying that IT becoming more important. And that's probably true. IT budgets are growing slightly. Mm-hmm. Everywhere, uh, people, uh, organizations employ more and more IT staff as a percentage of their staff. So uh, IT landscapes are getting, more, getting larger, getting more complex. From this standpoint, um, we see that architects are becoming more demanded in the industry. And uh, there are also limited evidence measuring the ratio of architects uh, uh, among IT staff. And uh, little available evidence suggests that this ratio is actually growing. And for example, to put it roughly, 20 years ago, we had twice less architects than now. So previously it was about, let's say, two, two and a half percent of all your IT staff. And now we have, I think, about five. Mm. So during uh, but yeah, but this number includes only solution architects, not only enterprise level architects, all, all architects. So what it suggests that actually over time, uh, proportion of architects that organizations employ is getting getting higher. I think this trend is also going to continue, so we will have more architects yeah. in the industry overall. Um, in terms of specific practices that architects use, well, I wouldn't dare to predict any specific practices, but I think... Uh, <laughs> As long as organizations are getting more and more IT dependent, then probably again communication needs are going to increase, and these needs may be going to stimulate the creation of some other some other documents facilitating that communication. I think one of the good examples here is business capability model. I was not able to find even a single publication that kind of created business capability model or promoted seriously its usage. This artifact obviously emerged in the industry, obviously from the need to improve strategic communication between business and IT, and then spread out very quickly across different countries. And uh, we don't know what's the origin of this document. Nobody pre- proposed it, right? There's no offer. Mm. No, <laughs> it just no, no, became no, a best. Right. 
because it works. And so uh, I think it is likely that we will also unexpectedly um, witness the emergence of some new documents that will somehow fit new needs that organizations are going to experience. But this is not predictable. And if this is going to happen, that's going to happen not because Business Architecture Guild is promoting that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, to, 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 to close the conversation, I will say that uh, I really hope that uh, your book, uh, The Practice of Enterprise Architecture, will be part of um, the future enterprise architecture um, performed by companies uh, out there. So uh, thank you very much uh, for, for joining uh, the Data Democracy podcast. It was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. I share your hopes. Yeah, <laughs> thank you.